They say that truth is stranger than fiction. And all you need to do is read the news regularly, and you will see that that is 100% absolutely true. I offer as evidence this AP story from November 27 of 1993 called Doctors Raise Fists During Operation, Patient Sleeps Through Brawl. And I'm going to keep one eye on Sam this whole time to see if there's any recognition in her face, if this has ever happened on her watch. Worcester, Massachusetts. I don't know how they say it there. Worcester. It began when the surgeon threw a cotton swab at the anesthesiologist and ended in a brawl on an operating room floor. The patient slept through it. The two doctors got up and resumed the operation, but they must pay $10,000 each. The State Board of Registration and Medicine fined anesthesiologist Dr. Kwok Wei Chan and surgeon Dr. Mohan Korjioker last week ordered them to undergo joint psychotherapy, which I think means, I hope it means psychotherapy together and not something else. Officials at Medical Center of Central Massachusetts must monitor them for five years. (laughs) This is my favorite part. Hospital officials wouldn't say what the two argued about. Here, according to the medical board, is what happened on October 24, 1991. Corgi Alker was about to begin surgery on an elderly woman when he and Chan began to argue. Chan swore at him, and he threw a cotton-tipped prep stick at Chan. The two raised their fists at each other and scuffled briefly on the floor while a nurse monitored the sleeping patient. They resumed the operation, which was completed a half an hour later without incidents. Kurgi Aukar, 49, is a 1967 graduate of the Armed Forces Medical College in India and has been licensed to practice medicine in Massachusetts since 1967. Chan, 43, is a 1976 graduate of the University of Cambridge and has been licensed in Massachusetts since 1979. Now, when I hear this, I think, what? Doctors in a sterile operating room fighting, and it starts with a a Q-tip being flicked at somebody? It's crazy on two levels. And and the the lesser is that these are, this is like an Ivy League educated guy and a guy with like a military education. You'd think they'd be so serious and they'd be such serious men about what they're doing. But more than that, it's not just you on the line here and your reputation. We've got someone, an elderly woman seemingly already been put under and her safety, her life is in the balance here as she's about to be operated on and you're throwing punches. I mean, if you're digging ditches with your buddies, sure, rough house and fight and do whatever you want. But if you're a roughneck 30 stories up building skyscrapers, don't because you could die. If you're a surgeon in the operating room, definitely don't because your patient could die. This unconscious woman who needs surgery and thought she could trust herself in the hands of these serious doctors, thankfully, did not know what was going on. And I think, in many ways, that is kind of a picture of what goes on in churches. Yeah, we say we need unity, as we've been hearing throughout the book of Ephesians, and we think it's best for the church, it's best for us, and that is true. But there is someone else on the table as well. And that is the world, the lost world that needs Christ. And while the church is squabbling and rolling around on the floor and flicking Q-tips at each other and arguing and fighting, there is something very serious, a mission that we've been given to complete. And that is the great commission given us by Jesus Christ. Now we're entering the second of the two phases of this book, the second half. In chapters one through three, Paul laid out what God had done for us 
in Christ Jesus. He began with where we languished without him, dead and hopeless, and how Christ then died in our stead and raised us with him to heavenly places to be his children and made a, a one new humanity of, of multiple groups now one in him. Now he begins this second half, chapters four through six. And it raises the question, in light of all that God has done, how then shall we as his people live in response to that? And don't miss that order of things. I know I hammer on this a lot, but it's very important. Throughout the entire New Testament, this is what you see. You see what God did, therefore, how we shall live, how we shall respond. First, he expounds, he expands, he explains, he exclaims what God has done. Then he exhorts what we should do. We know he's exhorting because he starts with, I therefore exhort you. Or as it says in our new ESV Bibles, I urge you. He's telling them what he wants them to live like now, but it's all in light of what he's already told them about what Jesus has done for us. How God in Christ reconciled us to himself. And so, reject out of hand any kind of religion with or without talk of God that promises fulfillment, self-actualization, meaning, purpose, any of it, by beginning with urging and exhorting. Be better. You do better. And then things will begin to look better. This is not what we see in the scriptures. And yeah, yeah, in the New Testament, people will say, what must I do to be saved? And they're told, repent and believe the gospel, or believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, or repent and be baptized. But believe what? And repent how? These always come after an explanation of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Okay, that the starting point is not you do in the gospel. It is God has done. Jesus says it is finished. And that's where we begin, where he has finished the work of our salvation. And this is doubly important with a word like worthy in the mix. Because there is no way any of us can become worthy to stand in his presence by what we do. By being exhorted and urged to do more and do more and obey. That is not how this works. We're all 0% worthy. And so the only one truly worthy to stand in the presence of the Father did so. Holding the sins of the world on his shoulders. Died a sinner's death. Rose again. And now has justified us and raised us to heavenly places. Having declared us worthy. And now we're told we are to live like the people who have received this gift because we are the people who has received this gift. And this is the first command as Paul shifts from the done portion of the book to the do portion of the book. He says, I exhort you to walk worthy of your calling. Now this is a road language that we have here, right? Now your walk is, is shorthand in the Bible for your life, your lifestyle, your, your comportment, perhaps. And, and the word peripateo in the Greek, it means kind of to walk around. And we might think, yeah, we're just kind of breezing through life and how we live informs who we are and whether or not we'll make it into heaven. But that's not the picture that the scriptures give us. The New Testament presents a road, a way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. The way, the hadas, which is the same word is used when Jesus said, the narrow road and the wide road stand before you. 
One of them is easy to find, one of them is hard to find. The hadas. So it means way, road, journey. When we talk about our walk, we're walking along this narrow road. And on this road, being acceptable before God is not the destination. It's the starting point. We're, we're set on this road already acceptable before God, already declared worthy. So walk worthy as you walk toward your eternal life in the presence of God. On the way. Jesus said, I am the way. That could be translated, I am the road. When the early church called themselves the way, they called themselves that long before anyone called them Christians. When they said we are the way, they could have been saying we are the road. We could translate it either way. Or we are the journey. And so we want to walk that road worthily. But before you can worry about whether you're walking worthy, we have to make sure we're on the right road. Uh, the, the most popular show at the moment, it seems, is, is one that my son and I have just started watching. It's on Disney+. Plus. Anybody else watching The Mandalorian? You are, Jen, right? It, we just realized this week it's actually about kind of like a space cult of bounty hunters. And, uh, and, and these guys are kind of a, a religious group, and their whole life is wrapped up in what they call the way. They say it all the time, this is the way. And when I first started watching it, I thought, ooh, I wonder if there's going to be kind of Christian overtones here, because the early church was called the way. But we realized, my son and I, pretty quickly, that what they tend to do is, they say this catchphrase, this is the way, whenever they say what they want to do, especially if someone challenges them. Wait, you're really going to do that? This is the way. And I know there's some super nerd somewhere who's figured out the entire text of whatever their founding document is, but it seems to me like what they want to do, they just sanctify it and say, this is the way, this is, this is my personal uh, road that I must follow, therefore no one can question it. And sadly, that seems to be kind of popular in the world and even the church today. Whatever we want to do, this is the way. The Bible says there's one way, one road, one journey. Jesus says, I am the way, and yet we say, maybe this is the way, or maybe we'll update the way, or maybe we'll add a few new side trips. There's a little oasis that you find on the turnpike in Ohio. You know, you come off over here and over here, and, and, and this is the way. What, the, the sexual revolution is mainstream now. We don't want to be unpopular in the church. This is the way, I guess. Over here, this is the way. Oh, it's, it's now acceptable to hate your neighbor over political differences. That's trending. Okay, I guess this is the way. We'll feel superior to people instead of loving and accepting them. That's not how this works. Jesus said, I am the way. There's no room for us to reinterpret that. And he told us the road is narrow. The gate is small and few find it. Which tells us if it's popular and it gains a lot of attaboys from the world, that's not the way. That the way is going to be something counter-cultural. We walk worthy of our calling by walking the narrow path that leads to life. So walk worthy of your calling. Ultimately, you read a sentence, a sentence like that, an introductory thing. Whoa, I almost went down. Remember that one time? Some of you. Now this, this walk worthy could actually refer to almost any instruction about the Christian life. Right? You could say, walk worthy of your calling, don't steal. Walk worthy of your calling, feed the hungry. Right? Anything. But, but Paul doesn't speak in generalities. He goes a very particular direction with what it looks like to walk worthy. And this is not the first time or the only time that he goes in this direction as a great example, maybe the best example of what it means to walk 
worthy. Look at Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Where does he go? To unity. Bearing with each other, loving one another. That's what it looks like for the church to walk worthy. In that verse, it's worthy of the gospel. Here, it's worthy of your calling. And our highest calling as Christians is to be called out of the world and into the body of Christ. In fact, we can make too much of this, but the word church in Greek is ek, meaning out, kaleo, meaning call, ekklesia, the ones called out. Called out of death and into life. Called out of Adam and into Christ. And what does it look like to walk worthy of that? Well, Paul's glad you asked. And he answers us in verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Sounds an awful lot like the fruit of the Spirit, which Mimi read for us earlier in the service. And notice this is not a list of rules. It doesn't say walk worthy. Don't drink, don't go to R-rated movies, you know, wear muted colors so you don't draw attention. Women, culottes, always culottes. There are those churches where that's the thing. It's the list of rules that comes in. And, and that is about what we do, 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 do. It gets into the pharisaical religion. This doesn't start like that. It doesn't even start like the Ten Commandments with thou shalt and thou shalt not. I'm going to pull out our old pew Bible, which was the NIV, a good translation. And here's what it says here in verse 2. B, this is what it means to walk humble. Uh, walk worthy. Be completely humble and patient. Be gentle, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Do you see how it starts with what you will be before it even addresses what you will do, what you will be? Now compare that to the ESV and you'll find that there's even more about your own efforts. In fact, the word effort is in there. Make every effort. But listen to the ESV. You are to walk worthy of the calling of which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The only command there is walk worthy. Everything else slides in underneath as a modifier, a description of what it looks like when that inner change of heart manifests in our outer life. And you see outwardly what God has been doing inwardly. Now, the gospel does go on to address uh, actions, and Paul does go on here to address our behavior and, yes, even our efforts at unity, but these flow out of the humility, out of the gentleness, out of the patience. What we will be and become is a gift of God, and what we will do will flow out of that. And again, I've said it before, I'll say it again, over and over again, because one of the main things separating true religion from human religion is that order. The gospel changes our hearts, who we are, and out of that comes what we do. Human religion says, do and do and do and obey until you become. You'll become holy. You'll become acceptable to God. The gospel says, no, you've got to become holy, become acceptable to God first. That happens by God's grace through our faith, and then you will naturally do and obey. And first among the things that will mark our walk in this way is this little pairing of all humility and gentleness. If you're wondering what it means to walk worthy, that's number one. All humility and gentleness should mark your life. 
So insofar as we are arrogant or brash or judgmental, we are not walking worthy of our calling. And recognize that humility was not valued in the Gentile world of this time. Pride was the great virtue, and that, I think, is becoming more and more the case in our world as well. Pride is no longer thought of as a stumbling block to be avoided, but a virtue, something wonderful to be celebrated and promoted and used to sell corn chips and soda pop and things. If we walk worthy of our calling, our lives and our values, yes, we'll look upside down, backwards, and inside out to the world around us, to those who are perishing. And because of that, and also because of the appetites of the flesh, the old Adam, the old Eve that remains in us, it is not easy to walk worthy. It is it is a difficult thing. And Paul here reminds us of this with his own example. I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord. These are not just empty words based on naive principles that he's throwing at us. This is something he's willing to live out. He's so committed to this gospel that he's suffering imprisonment for it. And that imbues these verses with more power and meaning. And don't miss that he's already given us the recipe for humility in the first three chapters of the book. That's the beauty of this, God has done, therefore we must do. He's shown us what it means to be humble, reminding us where we were when God found us. Dead in our sins and trespasses, separated from God, following Satan, destined for wrath, strangers to the promise, all of the above. And he plucked us out of that pit and washed us clean, clothed us in righteousness and set us on the road to life. That's why in the middle of his description of all this, he can say, lest anyone should boast. Nobody boasts about getting rescued, right? If we understand what really happened in our salvation, we can't boast. Oh, you guys, I got so lost, I had no idea where I was. They had to send a helicopter out. I was pathetic. High five. Like that, you, don't, you don't boast about that. In fact, Paul tells us elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the only thing we can boast on. And so he can pair together our humility and our gentleness. If we think more highly of others than we do of ourselves, the temptation to treat them harshly will evaporate. He calls these Christians saints, and then he calls these saints to be humble. Oswald Chambers, in true super brilliant Oswald Chambers fashion, observes this. When a little child becomes conscious of being a little a child, the childlikeness is gone. And when a saint becomes conscious of being a saint, something has gone wrong. We need to not be self-conscious of these things. We need to be conscious of the fact that only God's goodness has brought us from death to life. I remember talking to Alex a little while ago because little Levi was, was saying some words wrong. And I was like, oh, don't you wish he would kind of do that forever, even though you really don't want him to be 14 and saying like zombie instead of zombie and stuff. But, but you want to cherish it and hold it and freeze it in time. Because I remember uh, Calvin, you know, realizing, wait a minute, you're smiling because I said a word wrong. Tell me how to say it right. It's not ambulance. And I was like, no, it's ambulance. And, and little bits of the innocence are gone with that, with that awareness. Well, when we become too aware of a fact that we are holy and not still at the same time holding fast to the fact that we are not worthy on our own, the gentleness can disappear with the humility. So he pairs them together. Secondly, he says, with patience. 
So that tells us insofar as we are impatient in our lives, we are not walking worthy of our calling. Anybody struggling with patience these days? I am. I'm hearing, oh, this vaccine, 90%, 90%, 92%, things are looking great. And I'm like, okay, what's the holdup? It's been six months. We're tired of this stuff. Let's do it. Roll it out. Safety schmafety, right? When we're impatient, we are not walking worthy of our calling. And this isn't, by the way, just the willing to wait type patience. This isn't the difference between the kid in the back seat who's just quietly playing the Game Boy and the one who's saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? No, this is, this is the kid in the back seat whose brother is messing with him and poking at him and stuff, and he is not losing it. He's holding it together and bearing with him. The King James translates this word long-suffering, and that's the best translation. Long-suffering. Sounds awful, right? Well, it sometimes feels like it, but it's a fruit of the Spirit. In this context, it's how we walk worthy with long-suffering. You can see that for sure in his example. Bearing with one another in love. There was a grandmother who on the day of her, her golden wedding anniversary had a big party and all of her, her children and grandchildren were gathered around and one of them said, Grandma, what is the, what is the actual secret, you know, at the core of this, of a, a happy marriage? And she said, well, I think back all those decades ago to my wedding day and my mother had told me that the secret was to take a piece of paper and a pen and write out a list of 10 of my fiancé, soon-to-be husband's faults that I would overlook for the sake of the marriage. And they thought, wow, that's something. Do you remember what any of them were? And she said, well, I never got around to writing it down, but every time he really got under my skin, I would just say, lucky for him, that one's on the list. That's long-suffering. That is long-suffering, and that is what we ought to see in the church when we are walking worthy. If we're easily provoked, walking around with a hair trigger, we're not walking worthy. If your reputation is, oh, don't get on his bad side, you are not going to want to upset him. If you cross her, you'll pay for it. We are not walking worthy of our calling. When we bear with each other in love, we are walking worthy. When someone wrongs us, the love is there to cushion the blow. Love should come naturally to all Christians because as Jesus told us, whoever is forgiven much, loves much. And I don't know about you guys, but I've been forgiven much. Much. You've got no idea. And I'm not going to tell you. Right? I've been forgiven. Yeah, I, I'm, I need to remain aware of that. I need to remember that. I need that perspective that whatever someone might do to me is junior varsity compared to the sins I've committed against my father, sins for which I've been forgiven and washed clean. Not clawed my way out of the pit that always just leads to digging deeper into it. Picked up, carried out, and set on solid ground by God's grace. And we have to be careful in these terms. Grace is an important and slippery concept. Jude 4 warns us to look out for false teachers who will slip into the church and turn the grace of God into license. License to what? License to sin. You got a license for that sin? And they say, yeah. And they pull out John 3.16 or Ephesians 2 or something and say, right there, it's grace. Let's keep on going. Let's sin more so grace will increase. That's what grace is, right? And of course, Paul in Romans says, no, by no means is that what grace is. But we can tell ourselves we're really into grace when really what we want in actuality is to walk on the broad road 
all the while saying to ourselves, this is the way. And I really, I just, I just really excited about grace. That's why my life does not look like someone who's following Jesus. Don't make a bunch of rules, man. That's not grace. That's just window dressing on the road to destruction. So how can you know whether what you've received is true grace or whether it's something you've created in your mind? I think there are two ways. First of all, if you have to do Bible gymnastics, interpretive linguistic backbends in order to get around the clear meaning of Scripture, you may be off track and dealing in counterfeit grace. If you say to yourself, well, I mean, yeah, it seems to be quite clear, but it was such a different world back then, and there's only a handful of verses that condemn that sin, quote-unquote, and besides, grace, right? So that's my trump card whenever I don't like what the Bible tells me. That's not grace. That's not walking worthy. That's justifying your own unworthiness and wallowing in it. And so when we when we look at this, we have to recognize that long-suffering does not mean welcoming ongoing sin in our lives or in our churches, in our communities, without addressing it. In fact, go back to Jude, right? He said, contend earnestly for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. In Corinth, in the, in the first Corinthians, Paul said, expel the immoral brother. Put him out. Don't, don't just be long suffering with that kind of thing. That's gonna, that's gonna get into the whole body like leaven. But then in 2 Corinthians, he says he's repented. Welcome him back. What are you doing, guys? It's time to welcome him back. Our goal all along was his repentance, that he would live in, in God's presence forever. When a sinner repents, Jesus tells us there's a party in heaven. There ought to be a party on earth as well. We should be excited by this. But there's another way you can know if the grace that you hold to is true grace or counterfeit grace. And that's what we see here, I think. If you are a grace hoarder, if you love grace, but only when you're receiving it, when it comes time to show it to somebody else, <laughs> don't count on it. I'm not sharing that stuff. I'm holding on to it. That's not grace. You want to know if you've really received grace? Ask yourself this question. What would it look like if God showed me grace the way I show others grace? Or what would it look like if God forgave me the way I forgive others? That's a really important question because God will forgive me the way I forgive others. Not making it up. Jesus said it in Matthew 5. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. God is slow to anger and he calls us to be slow to anger. God gives us room to grow and patiently walks alongside us. And we are to do the same, especially with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are trying to grow in grace and knowledge and to mature and walk worthy themselves. And of course, in every group of fallible people, including in churches, there will be those who are the opposite of long-suffering. Of course, it might even be us from time to time. People who love giving their hot take judgments of people and they're almost always less than charitable, and that can spread like leaven through the whole lump, according to Jesus. And if it does, a church can be more or less neutralized in its witness. William Barclay said, a saint is someone who makes it easier for others to believe in God. If that's true, we want to be careful about being someone who makes it harder for others, even our fellow church members, to believe in God. But if the gospel is at work, that greater leaven will override our fleshly desires 
and sinful impulses. And we will gently remind one another, guys, we've been forgiven much. Let's show forgiveness. I'm not going to enter into the gossip. I'm not going to enter into this little side parking lot meeting or any of this stuff. Let's show grace. Let's show love. Let us be gentle and humble and walk worthy. I'm a member of a number of, of clergy groups, and I was meeting with one of them not too long ago. And one of the pastors said, how many of you guys have the church split brewing over masks? And everybody but me was like, eh, kind of. One guy said, I've got, I got people calling me angry all the time saying, if I have to wear a mask, I'm not coming, and I think that's so stupid. And someone else calls me just as angry. Well, I'm not coming if there's anyone who's not, and I can't believe you haven't shut that whole thing down. And it's almost like, even though they're on opposite sides, they're part of the same, like, make the pastor's life miserable campaign. And I, I kind of felt bad sitting there going, none of that. At least if it's there, it's not making my life miserable, and I'm oblivious to it. I know there's a variety of opinions on the matter here, but bearing with one another in love means not letting momentary differences and offenses get in the way of eternal fellowship and being one body. There's a reason we call slights slights, because they're little. And if we let them get in and grow and take control of us, that's the flesh at work. Walking worthy of our calling means holding a unity closely and, and gripping and grasping our brothers and sisters tightly and holding personal preferences and all the things that I'm due in my human principles much more loosely. The temptation to be combative or abrasive, to hold grudges and bitterness will always be there, but when we walk in the light, it tends to make those shadows dim. When Jesus rebuked Peter over his kind of devaluing of the cross, it wasn't out of anger or impatience. It was out of concern for his disciples. And then later when Paul rebuked, now Peter again, Peter's always getting rebuked, that's his thing. It wasn't out of anger or impatience, but again to help him see his lack of grace in the moment. And both of those were designed to build Peter up and they worked. Now all these years later, when someone thinks of heaven, it's not biblical, but they think it's St. Peter standing up there with the book saying, you're in, you're not. Because we think of him as the greatest of saints. They were building him up. I don't know if Peter would have survived our cancel culture today. There was no place for that in the early church, and there can't be any place for it now. Instead, it was a loving, patient correction culture. doesn't quite roll off the tongue the same, but it sure has a better outcome. So in verse 3, we're told that not only do we have all gentleness and humility and patience, but we're also told to get into Ephesians, not Galatians. And then we, and then we read, how the uh, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That should mark who we are as well, an eagerness. Having an eagerness to maintain unity. You know, that's not just a, a principle or an ideal we have. It's a drive. If you're eager for something, it's compelling you from within. Our walk together must reflect that eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit. When James and John encountered people who would not listen to their message, they were eager to call down fire from heaven and utterly destroy the entire town, right? And Jesus rebuked them. But he didn't burn the bridge with them. He didn't say, fire from heaven? Really? Like bomb the city? You guys are psycho. I'm done with you. Get out of here. You're not my disciples anymore. No, he kept investing in them. 
and teaching them. And John became the apostle of love. Read his letters, first and second and third. John, love, love, love all the way through. You'd never think this is the fire from heaven guy. And when he was an old, old man and he could see and he could, he could barely muster the strength to say anything, they would pick him up and bring him to the front of his congregation and sit him down. And he would say the same little sermon every single week. Little children love one another. He'd been shown love and grace and not been canceled and cut loose because he was kind of... Jesus bore with him in love. There was a Peanuts cartoon once where Lucy said, I hate everything. I hate everybody. I hate the whole world. So emo, Lucy. Charlie Brown responded, but I thought you had inner peace. And Lucy says, I do have inner peace, but I still have outer obnoxiousness. True inner peace will show itself through outer peace. If you think you've got peace with God, but it seems like you don't have peace with hardly anyone in your life, including fellow Christians, rethink that. But there's good news. We don't have to create the unity and build it from scratch for ourselves. We already have it in the spirit. It's like when they say, you know, the Pistons are up by 40 points. This game is theirs to lose. It's already theirs. Just maintain the lead. We only need to preserve this unity. We've already seen described that Jesus himself knocked down the walls, cleared the way for us to be one. And now we get to enjoy that unity together, that privilege, that fellowship. And more and more, it should be who we are. You know, there's a a school of decision making that says, I'm going to ask you the question, what you want to do. Don't think, just react. Don't think. I'm going to ask a question. Go. And you try and just get someone's gut reaction. Don't think, react. Well, the more we forgive, the more showing grace and forgiving one another will be our knee-jerk reaction. But until then, check the reactions of the flesh. Don't react. Think, pray, and take every thought captive to the glory of God. Don't be a slave to chemicals in your brain or the cravings of your flesh. Be gentle, humble, patient, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. This actually is the way. And it's a way that leads to unity. And that's where he ends this passage with this beautiful formula of unity. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. What a beautiful sentence. In 1 Peter 2, we're told that we are living stones being built up into a temple for God. Well, if that's the case, the spirit is the mortar holding those stones together in one building. And we have one spirit and one hope, just as each person only has one spirit, one animating self within them. So the church only has one spirit, the Holy Spirit. Different congregations have different traditions and may have different pet projects and different emphases. But if we have one spirit, we have one ultimate goal. And that is that God would be glorified. The gospel of Jesus Christ would be brought out to the ends of the earth, that we would see Christ lifted up higher and higher among all peoples and announce the kingdom having come on earth. And we have one shared hope, the blessed hope of the resurrection and the life of the world to come. Now he hits us with a bunch of one, one, one. He says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are one body. Christ does not have a harem. He has a bride. And that is us, the church invisible The church living and dead 
all of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are members of the same body. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you and I are members of the same body. We have one Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the earliest and simplest of Christian creeds. Jesus Christ is Lord. If that is the case, we serve the same Lord. And when we get into the attitude the disciples had when they said, oh, he was casting out demons, but he didn't follow with us, so we told him stop. That's when Jesus starts to rebuke us. There is one Lord, one faith, one faith handed down once for all to the saints. We debate points of doctrine, some of them important, some of them trivial, but those who acknowledge Jesus Christ as God and look to him alone, the Son of God, for salvation, share one faith and have unity in it. One baptism, even though it's become one of the most divisive doctrines and practices in the Christian church, all believers are baptized into the same body with this living picture of our stains being washed away. And finally, one father. That ought to bind us together if nothing else does. And I've noticed in decades of ministering to people, families who've just lost someone, that when the, the last parent dies in a family, whether it's the mother or the father, one of two things will happen if there are multiple siblings. Either they will hold together under the, the shared identity in honor of that parent who's died, and they will continue to hold each other up and support each other, or they will pull apart and turn against each other now that that, that one person that was holding them together is gone. I think of a worst example being perhaps when Gideon died and Abimelech invited his 70 brothers to go to a retreat so he could kill them all on the same stone. Well, our father will not die. He is eternal. And our shared bond in him should keep us from ever turning against one another. Our father who is over all, through all, in all. This isn't pantheism or, or panentheism, the idea that God is just this this impersonal force infusing everything. Rather, this is highlighting God's omnipresence and his special presence with those who are gathered in worship. He's present in the house church in China, in the cathedrals in, in Toledo, whether Ohio or Spain, in the revivals in the deep south and the outdoor barefoot hippie church in the UP. He's present in the buttoned-up Presbyterian meeting in Okemos. He is over all, through all, in all. He is transcendent and he is imminent. He's above all and sovereign and powerful and he is intimately involved in us and he even dwells in our hearts. Notice the Trinity here once again. All these threes that I've been pointing out, peppered through this, they're here for a reason. They're pointing us to the fact that Father, Son, and Holy Ghost right here in this passage are all working in unity to draw us together to unity. We're never more godly than when we value our unity more than our rights. When we value our unity more than our own desires. We're never more godly than when we forgive and bear with each other and refuse to let the enemy divide us. Psalm 133 begins, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And the whole rest of the psalm is just about how beautiful that is. It doesn't really relate to me much. It's like a beard dripping with oil. And I'm like, Neh. but... The point is clear. That's a beautiful thing in the eyes of God. Good and pleasant when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. In Ephesus in the first century, it was the Jew-Gentile divide that was threatening to tear them apart and destroy their unity. Today, it's a hundred other things, but we cannot let any of them 
get between us. Beware of division, but also beware of generic unity, worldly unity, the cheap knockoff. The world's unity, based on the fact that we, you know, exist and must coexist, it's empty, wishful thinking, destined to fail. But gospel unity is built on our God and what he's done for us, Ephesians 1 through 3, and it is destined to succeed. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll notice something annoying about someone, some little thing that bugs me, and then I struggle not to notice it all the time. You ever do that? I'm talking about someone who every time they start a sentence, they make a smacking sound beforehand. You don't notice it for years, and all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, they're going to talk. They're like, so... It's like, like glass breaks and it can't be repaired. Or they're a one-upper. You tell a story and they say, oh yeah, I've got essentially a better version of the same story. Or they're a loud chewer. Or there's a particular word they use way too much and they pronounce it weird on purpose. Our flesh will grab onto and magnify the faults of others, especially if they're more significant than those little things. Someone who makes promises and doesn't follow through. Someone who has little tantrums when things don't go his or her way. But the Spirit at work in us will grab onto and magnify that which makes us one. Those things that overshadow all the rest. And here in six short verses, he's listed, listed off an awful lot of things that unite us as one. And we can either focus on those and grow together to maturity, or we can focus on those things that divide us and slowly learn anew the truth of Jesus' warning that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And the church in the West, the church in America, as the, the culture becomes more and more hostile to the gospel, is going to have to learn this, I think, very quickly, starting with this guy that I shave with every morning. Where our focus is will determine which way we go. You guys remember the three tenors? It was uh, Pavarotti and those other two guys. And they toured around and they were all big shots. And of course, uh, you know, they're tenors, they're famous, they're operatic, and they may have reputations of being, you know, a little prima donna-ish and having riders with lots of things that they need in the green room and stuff. And there was a reporter from the Atlantic trying to sort of stir up some super competitive juju between them in an interview and kept throwing in these questions that were designed to kind of get that competitive thing going and, and turn them against each other. And one of them, Domingo, another one of them is Domingo. Domingo said, you have to put all your concentration into opening your heart to the music. You can't be rivals when you're together making music. It'd be a little cheesy, but I think that's what we see in the church too. If we focus on the gospel, lifting up Christ and and bringing the banners of Christ out into the world and into the heavenly places of celebrating the salvation that we have received. How can we be rivals? How can we have time for squabbles? How can we not bear with one another in love with all gentleness and humility, with patience, walking worthy of our calling? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this passage. We thank you for these wonderful words that remind us that we have good news that grounds us and that we know this is the way. Starting with being made acceptable in your sight, now we walk and we pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength to walk worthy toward the celestial city. Lord, we pray that we would walk worthy. You, you would give us gentleness when we forget ourselves. 
When, when we become proud, you would give us humility. When we become impatient or angry, you would give us long-suffering, Lord, that we would bear with one another in love and hold dear to our hearts that bond of peace, remembering that we have one Spirit, one Lord Jesus Christ, one Father, one faith, one baptism. Lord, how could anything divide us in light of all of that? We pray that you'd be at work in our midst, binding us together with cords that cannot be broken. Amen.